Welcome back to the Wedding Wisdom Podcast with Doug Winters. This is episode 79, and I could not be more thrilled than to bring you my conversation with the internationally renowned wedding planner, Bruce Russell. A native of Nova Scotia, he is now a British citizen, which makes him officially the first international guest we've had on this podcast. He is truly a delight. Perhaps it's the way he used the word whilst, or that when I asked him what the temperature was like in Nova Scotia, he said it was in the teens, and I said, wow, that's cold, and he says, oh, I'm sorry, that was in Celsius. So I don't know if that speaks of my incredibly provincial American upbringing, but hopefully you will find Bruce to be as charming a person as he is a master of what we all ascribe to be, which is the best at what we do. So I invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with Bruce Russell. And as usual, I'll see you on the other side. Hello, how are you? Good, how nice to see you. You too. Great to meet in person, technically. Exactly. You know what's really funny is that I just assumed that you were British. (laughs) Then I started doing my homework. (laughs) You are indeed French-Canadian. Originally, yes. Now holder of a British passport, so technically I'm British. So you started, okay. So you started, here's how much my homework took me. Ready? By the way, I can't believe you're wearing a sweater because I put on a suit jacket just because you were coming (laughs) on. And every time I saw you, (laughs) you were wearing like a proper blazer. No tie, but just... Yeah. Never. Yeah. Well, that's good homework. Technically, yes. So it's either sweater, blazer, depends on the day, but I'm, I'm more of a comfortable, casual, presentable look. As opposed to my standard t-shirt kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> It'll come off after that. Yes. <laughs> okay, cool. Is your company named by Bruce Russell or just Bruce Russell? It, it started as by Bruce Russell because BruceRussell.com was taken back in the day when I, when I started this off. And I've since let go of the buy. And there's a whole website rebrand happening as we speak, which hopefully will launch in the next month. So yeah, it's, it's just now Bruce Russell. BruceRussellEvents.com rather than by Bruce Russell. Okay, so the buy is... Going goodbye. Goodbye to bye. Goodbye to bye. I've interviewed a lot of planners. Yeah. Who sometimes go by the name of producers or event coordinators or four or five different names. But I was I was delighted to see that you called yourself a wedding planner. Yeah. Simple. Simple is better. <laughs> you know, as people understand. Exactly. And I think it's gotten quite, it's, it's different in Europe than it is in, I think, the U.S. The U.S. try to be a bit more specific. You know, you're either a planner or a designer. And I probably, I identify myself as a planner because I think logistically. I have the creative side. I do design, mm-hmm. but I design visually but somebody else needs to put it together because I can't build anything. So for me, I have an eye for design, but my mind thinks logistics. As it's been explained to me, the planner is the one in charge. So the people who call themselves producers, they'll compare it to like a Broadway show. Yeah. And they'll say the producer even hires the director and the art director. So the designer only design. 
Does that sound about right? I would say, yes, that is correct in a sense, because even though I design, I would hire a designer to support what I think of. Right. Here's what I've, I've gleaned from watching a couple of YouTube videos that you did. Worked in Montreal, then at the Plaza in New York. You there for three years until they were sold by the Fairmount Group. Fairmont, yeah. Well, it was owned. It was separately owned, but it was managed by Fairmont at the time, who then, but the owners sold it. That's when the plaza was sold back. You moved to London. Oh, because Fairmont also owned the Savoy Hotel in London. I worked for the Savoy as part of, um, you know, I, I basically moved to Europe on a work visa with Fairmont. So, I mean, my background was education. My, my field of study was, was to become a school teacher which I quickly decided that at the end of my degree was I'm not going to be a parent to 35 children on a daily basis for <laughs> my life. So oddly enough, I got a summer job, a part-time job working for, at the time, um, a reservation call center for a hotel company, which then grew into a permanent job, which the company then merged with Fairmont Hotels, and that's when I started working in hotels across Canada, ended up in Montreal, and I was pretty much doing sales, marketing, and PR mm-hmm. uh, throughout the course of, of that career. So Fairmont is a large... Fairmont Hotels is now part of the Accor Hotel Group. Fairmont is one of the luxury brands, but there's Raffles, um, Swiss Hotel, Sofitel. I mean, they're all under one big umbrella now, okay. globally. Everything from Premier Inn to luxury castles. Once the plaza closed, which is where I was based, I was offered, in order to stay with the company and stay on a work visa, because I'm Canadian originally, I then ended up going to London where they were taking over the Savoy, which was the company's first output in in Europe or outside of North America. Right. Okay. So did the Savoy become their sort of flagship? Yeah. Okay. And I worked, I worked Savoy for a number of years, and then I worked in global sales for Fairmont um, for the hotel group, managing clients who were European-based for properties all over the world. And then I left, worked for a much smaller hotel company, and then decided to start my own business. But when I kind of launched into weddings, the Savoy was still, which is when I went into consulting for the Savoy. Uh, basically as a part-time revenue generator whilst I was getting my, my business. I love the way you described that on one of the interviews I saw. You said something to pay the bills while I was starting out on my own. Yeah, and then that developed into a consultancy service that I provided to the hotel for just over six years. And then little by little, you were developing your own company? Correct. And would you do it at the Savoy in conjunction with them or totally different? Uh, I mean, how it worked really kind of the arrangement I had with them was from a sales perspective. So I basically installed a team there that looked after basically selling weddings. And right. once the, the client committed, they were looked after by a, a weddings events manager who was employed by the hotel and did all of that. But what often happened um, in the first few years was having dealt with me or my team, the client would then say, well, we want you to plan our wedding. And then they would hire us privately and we would become the Savoy's client. So you really had two families. I really wanted to keep my Savoy relationship, business relationship separate to my wedding planning business. 
But they knew even, about it. They knew about it. They, that was the agreement. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so if another planner came in with an inquiry for the hotel, we would manage that inquiry in the sales phase, but mm -hmm. we had nothing to do with it. Right. Right. Okay. So now, no now you do it all from soup to nuts. Yeah. So what I'm really discovering also is that there really are several markets, one being the luxury market, which basically I'm translating to mean people who have money to spend. Essentially, I, I always, you know, people will come to you and say, oh, you know, what's your fee or how, you know, how much, what is the average spend of a wedding you produce? And, and there is no simple answer to that. I, I always say that I... I want to ensure that what I'm hired to do, I can do, I have the budget to do creatively and beautifully. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that can be dinner for 10 who have, you know, five grand per guest, or it can be 300 people and you have one grand per guest. It's, it's really not, there, there's not a simple answer, but I just want to ensure that from the moment a client inquires with me, that we understand, I understand, A, what they want to achieve, but B, that they also have the budget for me to do things creatively that will showcase what I do and create a really memorable event. I always tell my clients, this is gonna be the most expensive party you'll ever throw, but remember it's still a party. Yeah. And your whole goal is to let the bride let go. And as soon as they let go, everyone else relaxes. Yeah. And everybody else does relax. You know, I think people look for, I don't, I don't want to say look for conflict, but people, I guess, intuitively look for things that might not be right. And then as soon as they realize, oh, this is, you know, I'm comfortable, I'm happy, I'm letting go. It's, you know, it makes, makes a huge difference to, to the job that I have to do. Exactly. The pressure on the bride and groom or bride and bride or groom and groom or is enormous, especially at yeah. a larger function, because it's really it's the first time they as a couple are hosting a formal event. You yeah. know, so they don't know really what their role is supposed to be. And I think people are overwhelmed today with information. Yeah. With and not just information, but visuals. You know, and I find myself doing it, you know, I'll be scrolling through Instagram and, and, you know, save images. I'm like, Ooh, I like this recipe or, you know, this wallpaper looks great or this, and you just constantly save and accumulate visuals. And then you think, okay, well, I want this. And, and my job is really to be able to get to understand what it is about those images that they want. Is it a feeling? Is it a look? Is it because that's who they are as a couple? It's trying to pick out the little bits of information that I can then take what they want, but make it theirs. Right. The thing that you do with Tara is fabulous. For anybody that doesn't know, uh, it's called Bruce and Tara Live. Yeah. And they're all like seven or eight minutes and you just take a topic and you hone in on it and it's done. It's just very down to earth. The premise of Bruce and Tara Live came off of TV series we were filming for the RT TV network in Ireland. It's called My Big Day Home or Away. And 
couples would apply to be on the show, but basically they would still, they would have to pay for their own wedding. So you're a couple, you have a budget of X, you want to get married either at home in Ireland or abroad. But what you get with the show is you get Bruce and Tara to present you with options, home and abroad, and then you have to pick one. Essentially pick a planner that you want, but we actually plan your entire wedding for nothing. Wow. And you get two of us, because we end up, no matter who wins, as in which destination they pick, you get Tara and myself who actually plan and orchestrate and are there on the day and do your entire wedding. But what we, you know, and these couples are probably couples who have an average wedding budget of maybe 20,000 euros. So, Oh, oh we're not talking not, about $3 million. No, no. So not typically, you know, this is your average couple who, you know, are, are, have saved up or have, you know, modest means, you know, but they normally wouldn't have access to, to people like Tara and myself to plan their entire event. Right. Um, and what we discovered by working with these couples and we produced, you know, beautiful weddings for them. And it was really, you know, it, it was really emotional for both of us to, mm -hmm. to go through the process. But we discovered that there was not a lack of information, but there was a lack of good information out there for couples at that price point who go through the same process as couples who have multi-million dollar budgets. Why can't they have access to the same quality of information? And so these videos are meant to be us sharing our expertise because as we said, we're not, we're not influencers, we're experts in what we do. So we're not here to influence you to purchase something or buy something, even though, you know, there, there will be a, an elements that they can buy from us as in our time or templates or different things. But it was very much about here's what we've accumulated in terms of experience over the last 40 plus years collectively, you know, no, you don't have to do this or yes, you can do that. Or, you know, here's how we dealt with this specific situation. And, and we do it very genuinely and very humanly. Right. And it's not, you know, it's not necessarily about rules, but it's about providing couples with information that they normally wouldn't, unless they've done it, wouldn't think of it. And hopefully, you know, the people who are planning their own wedding have never done it before. We just want to make sure that we're providing them with guidance and information to allow them to make good decisions. Right. I think it's with, with any rules or any traditions, if you want to look at it, I'm a firm believer in just make it your own. Yeah. Do, what, do what's right for you. Don't do what you feel you're being told to do because you think it's the way it should happen. What you've seen now, I think a lot more with, you know, people have a man of honor or a best girl or a best woman. You know, the, the bride side doesn't all need to be women. The men's side doesn't all need to be men. It's, you know, one groom of a wedding we did actually, Tara and I did for the show, his best person was his sister. Oh, that's great. She was the closest person to him, you know, that had been there throughout his life and growing up. And that was who he wanted. And why not? The guest list. So if you could talk about that a bit, about your thoughts, yeah. about how far it should go, second cousins, how do you advise? The advice on this topic is like walking through a minefield. <laughs> or, 
or if you're if you're a therapist. It's it's really about this comes down to family dynamics from the couple, from the parents, from to who's paying for the wedding and all of this. And and I usually break it down into, you know, if I'm mediating this conversation, <laughs> you know, A, how many people can you physically accommodate? And these decisions need to be made quite early. If you're renting out a venue, you need to make sure that the amount of people you want to have can fit. I've seen everything from, you know, parents have no say in the guest list and it's about the bride and groom, but then others where parents are very much involved. And yes, you know, it's the, the father of the bride. It's, it's his moment to entertain his group of people. And, you know, I think depending on the relationship that the couple have with their parents and their future in-laws helps that dynamic and helps you make, you know, make the right decision. But I boil it down to one point. We've probably had a conversation about budget. I can probably predict how much this wedding is going to cost. And as soon as you put a figure on a guest and tell them, well, if you want to invite this person, it's costing you $2,000. Would you invest $2,000 in this person at any other time in your life? Do it. Try to consider that. If inviting the father's 10 law firm partners is important and it's costing them 20 grand and that's a sum that you're happy to pay for and it's worth it. As soon as you attribute a value amount cost to that person, because it's not just the cost of a meal, 20 extra people, it's two tables of 10, it's linen, crockery, cutlery, glassware, florals. It's not just the $150 menu. Right. And so that $2,000 number could easily be 1000 could be 10000 Could be anything, depending on what your overall budget is. That's really, really, really interesting. Yeah. As soon as you do that, it then brings it back to the fact that this is a business decision. It, yes, it's personal, but planning a wedding and spending that amount of money, these are business transactions. Who usually pays? Um, I think that depends on... I mean, if I look at my own clients, my clients are mostly, it's one of two things. They're international clients coming to Europe to get married or they're European clients going internationally. Um, I do very few British weddings for British couples. I'm not sure why that's been. Um, probably because I didn't grow up in London, so I'm not British by birth and I'm not socially connected in that way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And my clients are oftentimes, as a couple, the people paying for their own wedding. So they're probably in their mid-30s to, you know, mid-50s. Oh, that's interesting. On occasion, you do get the couples where, you know, father of the bride is paying or, you know, mother of the groom or it, it really depends on, on dynamic. But it's not, there, I wouldn't say that there's a norm. Yeah, so it's no longer the the standard thing that you, you know, again, I go back yeah. to, you know, populist movies. The father of the bride. The father of the bride. The girl's 25 yeah. and daddy's paying for it. And I'm glad you said that because I have found over the past 10 years that my average age of the bride and groom, well, the couple is early 30s. Yeah. It's not 
25 anymore. There's still some out there, but and I think, you know, what you find as well is I always say that now a wedding is not just a wedding day. It's the welcome party. It's the farewell brunch or it's something, and certainly if it's a destination wedding. So what I do find as well is, you know, the you know father of the bride may pay for the wedding and parents of the groom might pay for the welcome reception or host the barbecue the next day. So it really depends on financials and, and, and people's choices, really. So your clients, when you're planning a wedding, is usually in like some kind of exotic location. If I'm lucky, yeah. You know, whether it's Paris, Lake Como, or, you know, Morocco. But they're not one-day events. Typically, yeah, I'd say the average is, the average is probably three. Mm-hmm. Some are two. Even, even the ones who are British couples in England doing it at home, they typically have either the pre or the post. It's, it's rarely just one day anymore. Right. Okay. The one thing I've never done, I've never done a destination wedding. Like you said, you love logistics. I know what it takes to get a 12-piece band from wherever they live in the tri-state area to one location an hour early, do a sound check, yeah. have them know all the tunes that were requested. I can't imagine what happens when you throw in plane travel and then multiply it by you dealing with the, the florist as well as the, the band or the DJ and then the thousand other things, making sure the flowers, which are coming from all places around the world, you know, <laughs> it's, it's huge. It's a lot of logistics, but it, it's a lot of pre-planning. And that really is it. Again, if I go back to the budget element, it's ensuring that I have the budget to be able to do things with vendors and creative partners who I know will deliver on what we are putting together. And that's the challenge sometimes when working in a destination abroad is A, finding those people, but educating the client as to the value of what that costs there and why we need to pay X to ensure that they get it when they could think, oh, well, I can get that at home for half the price. And and maybe so, but the fact is here, you have to import most of your flowers in Morocco and you have to pay the middle guy who's going to make sure that they get off the boat and get to the driver who's transporting them here because they can go missing halfway, you know, in between. Yeah. If you don't have a person hired to do that for you. And, and you know, how the wheels of industry flow in, in different countries is, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it is. If you're planning a party in Morocco, that name stuck in my head. You would go there a couple of times, right, to yeah. make sure the electricity is up to code, even if it's in a tent. As a band leader, I literally, the first question I ask is, I need two dedicated 20 amp fuses yeah. from, the, from a generator. I don't know what that means, but I know that the band's <laughs> not going <laughs> to. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's also, you know, sometimes you need to bring things with you or bring vendors with you to get the level that you might want, Mm -hmm. or you just need to know where to go and ensure that, you know, someone who tells you they're going to deliver X are able to deliver X. You know, the great thing with, with this entire industry is that we do have a network of people around the globe who we can ask for for advice, for guidance. If I haven't done a wedding in Peru, I probably know somebody who has. So if I'm gonna do something there, then I'm going to tap into my resources to find out, okay, who's the one person on the ground there that I need to work with and then work around that. 
I mean, the only thing I keep thinking is literally you have, let's say, 200 people flying in from all over the globe. You know, how they get from the airport to the hotel, from the hotel to the venue, from the venue. When you talk about logistics, it's like, you know, being a military. I mean, it's mammoth. Yeah. And I, I mean, I typically, and a number of planners that I know do this as well, especially if they're working internationally, is you, what we do is we essentially build our team per mm-hmm. event. So if I'm going to do, you know, if I've got 200 people going to the south of France, arriving, you know, on a Thursday or Friday, we have three events in three different locations. We're providing transportation to and from all of these hotels or wherever they may be staying right. to and from then I, I literally have one per, well, A, I'll hire someone locally and hire one transport company or, or DMs, destination management company to manage this. But for my team, there is one person whose sole job is to manage transport okay. and communicate to the guests and remind the guests. And well, that means that. holding up a sign at the airport. Um, you know, a little, something a little more discreet, uh, but yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jones wedding, follow me. <laughs> yeah the umbrella um but no but essentially yes that process or that experience doesn't just start at the airport it's for us it's the communication with the guest before they even leave home so you know typically as a planner you'd say well you know the first interaction you have with a guest is actually at a wedding but we do because we all manage the rsvps we kind of manage that guest relations portion of it prior to as well. Oh, starting with a save the date invitation. Starting, whether it's save the date or once, let's say everyone's RSVP'd, you know, a month before the wedding, we'll get in contact with everyone and we'll do it on email or we'll phone them up and we'll reconfirm and speak to them directly rather than having them fill out a form, which they may or may not have done, mm. but to get voluntary requirements, reconfirm their flight details, all of those, those bits of information so that actually we're getting to know the guests before they actually arrive, which kind of enhances the, their experience as well. What most guests do when they go to a destination wedding <laughs> is they kind of leave the mentality of it's like they're on holiday. Someone else is going to take care of me in, in, in a lot of cases. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've managed that. At the end of the day, on the day or at I'm very client facing as in my clients. So I need to ensure that I am not or I'm not technically 100% responsible for a specific task. As in, I'm not going to be the person who makes sure that everybody gets on that bus. (laughs) Right. Because whilst I'm supposed to be doing that, there could be something else that comes up as in, you know, half the band is stuck in customs and I need to deal with that. So, you know, I deal with the unexpected and, and manage the client facing to ensure them that everything is fine, everything's great. But, you know, there are people who are assigned. So, and it really depends if it's production heavy or if it's design heavy. I have one person whose, you know, sole responsibility practically is to manage the guest list. So if one guest needs anything, they're the go-to person. They've done the seating plan. They're assigned to double check that all of the place cards are on the table on the right spots and all of that because Mm -hmm. they know that intimately by that point because they've been dealing with these guests for months now right and as you said if it's transport heavy there'd be someone looking after transport there's normally one person on production and production is anything you know lighting technical looking after the entertainment making sure that that element is 
is done. And then there's one person who is the contact go-to person for setup and design, which includes floral, you know, the pretty stuff and, and the logistics of whether it's a marquee or whether it's the venue and just making sure that we're managing that. And that's usually done by a designer separate um, or is that you? It depends. It's one of two things. It's either a designer separately, mm-hmm. but then, and it, depending on the relationship I have with that, let's say, you know, if I'm, if I'm hiring David Beam, let's say, and his team, to look after the design elements of, of an event, I know and you know know David very well. I would trust Christina Matucci with my life. <laughs> right. I know they're in good hands with that. I don't need someone to babysit them. You know, I know and trust them personally. Mm-hmm. But if we're hiring a local florist, let's say, who isn't necessarily a designer, then I may have someone as a design team from my team manage them to ensure that they're going to deliver what we want visually. Right. It depends where you're working and it depends on the budget. So do you have a large, I mean, how many people do you have in your employee and how many people do you sort of job in? This is pre pre and post COVID. <laughs> yeah. You know, like not including the year 2020. Um, yeah. It's, it's quite, it's very small. I'm on every event, every wedding and, there's a, there's a PA who manages the day-to-day admin, and then there's a number two who looks after whatever I can't look after. Who... Like you're seeing it with David. Yeah. And then I build the team per event. Because I don't do 50 events a year, the average is probably between five and eight. Um, oh, really? Depending, depending on the scope, depending on budgets. I've always said going into this, I don't want to have to bring on work to pay staff. Interesting. I don't want to build an events company. Right. There was a point a few years ago where it started going that way. And I thought this is not, you know, from a business model point of view, people probably look at me and go, that's crazy. In hindsight, you know, because of COVID, I think, well, actually, for me, it's a good thing that my business is this way because the only person I really have to worry about right now is myself. Yeah, you don't have to fire 20 people. Exactly, exactly. It's relevant to what you want your business to be. And because most of my events are not London-based, you know, for me to have a team of 20 in London, I would rather hire locally when I need a team in Italy or in the south of France or in Morocco, where, you know, I know that, okay, if we're working in Marrakesh, then I'll go to Kamar and hire her as a contractor for this event. And, and it, it works for me. That's really interesting. I just had Brian Raffanelli on. Yeah. And, and he said just the opposite. He literally said, really? there are people that I know and love in this business that do five to 10 parties a year. Could I live the lifestyle that I live now if I did that? No. Yeah. And he says, I, I, just, I, I just enjoy the numbers. You know, I just like doing, and he's got 50 employees. Yeah. So you're one of those people that he probably dearly loves that does five parties here. Yeah. Which then allows me to, if I'm lucky, there's enough demand that I can handpick and make sure that the, the events I'm doing are events that I want to do. But also it allows me the opportunity to, you know, as I said last year, Tara and I filmed a show in Ireland where I wouldn't have had the opportunity probably to do that if, if I hadn't. So it, it allows me to, to shape I guess my career and my day-to-day life. 
way your life. Yeah. Right. Oh, so if you were planning 50 jobs a year, you wouldn't have time to take off and do your Other project. I wouldn't be involved in each of them to the level that I am. As deeply. Yeah. And your clients know this. Oh, completely. When they hire Bruce Russell, they have Bruce Russell. Yeah. How did the connection with Tara come about? Uh, Who's from Ireland, yes? Yes. Tara's based in Dublin. I'm based um, just outside of London. And we met at, a, at an industry conference uh, in Mauritius probably like five years ago. Mm-hmm. And we met at the same time, you know, David Beam and Christina were there, a number of people, Marcy Bloom. And, and so it was kind of a moment where I guess a lot of us kind of connected together and we've built this, this network of people that, you know, get stronger and stronger and increases and grows throughout. And yeah, so that's, we met there and then we were, Tara was approached by this TV network in, in Dublin I think about a year and a half later, and we'd cross paths again through that time, kept in touch because we run a very similar business model in terms of, you know, she's not a huge events company, neither am I. And, you know, we realized that we kind of have the same ethics and values and and, Mm -hmm. each of us do bring something different to the table. But when she was approached with this concept, because it's a competitive concept where- Oh, the television show. Yeah, the show. Technically, she felt that she wouldn't have been comfortable doing it with another planner who was Irish-based. And she said, actually, Mm -hmm. if you want sort of a male-female duo, she said, I'm bringing in, you know, this guy from London. I got just the guy. (laughs) Yeah. And and she said, I would would do it. And the thing that we developed at the very beginning, um, certainly when you're working in television, and especially when you're two separate um, kind of co-stars, if you want to call them, call us that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very much. Sometimes, the, you know, networks can try to pin you against each other or keep something from one. But from the very beginning, you know, we had each other's backs. Oh, that's great. I wouldn't accept to do something if Tara wasn't comfortable with it and vice versa. So we really went into this together. Oh, really as a team? Yeah. Even though we were supposed to be competitors on that. And you are in real life. We are in real life. You know, what I would say about Tara, about, you know, anybody else in the industry, if I'm up against or if a client is considering myself or considering Tara, you know, if I lose business to Tara, it wasn't my business to begin with. (laughs) You are like shockingly healthy about this (laughs) industry. (laughs) In an industry of, you know, very... (laughs) High strung, very creative, very... I am on a very remote part of the East Coast of Canada at the moment. I was just going to say, where are you that looks like a picture postcard that is it's sensational? There's water behind you. This is your home. This is my hometown. Yes, I rent this home from a friend of mine um, every summer when we come home. Yes, quarantining in Canada for 14 days and then visiting family before I try to head to, um, to California to meet with clients. My parents live here. It's a very small, remote town and very picturesque part of Nova Scotia. So there are incredible restrictions in terms of you flying anywhere. Yeah, they change daily. Just to get this straight for everybody, you're a London-based wedding planner, Mm -hmm. quarantining in your family's hometown in near Nova Scotia. Yeah. In Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. You're flying to California to meet with a client. 
Yeah. Who may be having a party where? They are, they were scheduled to have a 200 person wedding in London last month. They are now having a 200 person wedding or planning to have a 200 person wedding in California in July next year. I met the mother of the bride literally three years ago, almost to the day. So I've been connected to, to this family for, for just about three years. And you've yet to work together. When you work at this level, you know, I've been, I've traveled with them. They've been to London a number of times. They were here, they were with us or in London over Christmas. And I spent quite a bit of time and we've looked at venues and we started, I mean, the design process was, was well underway. Um, oh, okay. It was almost like the pause button was hit. And then it was like, okay, let's take apart what we've done for the last year and let's now start it from scratch again. So that's where we are. So, you know, in, in essence, from a planning perspective, I'm heading out there to meet them, to see the venues that we're using, to meet production, catering, floral, number of people who potentially I will want to use to effectively Put together. Oh, so you're going out there more or less on a fact-finding mission. I've done the fact-finding. I'm sort of going to confirm the facts so that I can then go back home and go into full planning and design mode. Confident that you have the right people in place. Yeah. yeah. Confident that I have the right people to deliver because also what I want to do is even though I know these clients intimately now, mm -hmm. I also want to make sure that I understand and they understand what's possible, not possible within the three venues that we've chosen. Make sure that we're visiting this together to say, okay, well, if we're doing this here, here's how we'll set things up before we then, you know, hopefully there won't be, there'll be another meeting or planning trip in, in the early part of next year, depending on restrictions. Um, oh, please, but yeah, but please let it be over by then, please. I'll be spending a lot of time with myself. Yeah. <laughs> that's the crazy, I personally, I feel that's the crazy part because I think, you know, in hindsight, had somebody said in March, okay, write off the next 12 months mm -hmm. and be ready for, you know, spring 2021. As a planner, you can then plan for that or you can then adapt to that. I've given myself sort of three month chunks. <laughs> you know, I'm taking March to May and I'm just going to step back. Mm -hmm. There's nothing let me do projects around the house that I haven't been able to do because I spend too much time traveling. I'm never at home. Let me get into cooking. Let me do this. Three months, fine. You know, active routine, walking, getting fit, doing stuff. And then I was like, okay, now I can, now we're in June. <laughs> and there's still no work in sight. Get to September mentally. And you sort of think, you know, and by September, you think things will start to pick up so that hopefully you know, we can get a few smaller events or smaller parties before the end of the year, something to keep you creative. Then I just started doing with, you know, a floral designer friend of mine, we started doing a few style shoots and things, which I vowed I would never do. But honestly, it's been a saving grace because it's got me out there again. It's kept me creative. It's kept me amongst people and, and sort of have that purpose. But now I'm like, okay. Could you describe a style shoot? I've heard that term. Well, there, there, there's, there's one way to look at it and then there's Bruce's way to look at it. It's, <laughs> you know, I think the challenge with me was, I mean, with the shoot, it's, it's collaborators coming together to sort of basically set the scene. 
in a very specific way. So what I had sort of wanted to do, because everybody was starting to talk, you know, this was back in sort of May, June, people were talking, oh, over the summer, maybe we can have 15 people, 20 people, small dinner parties, intimate, celebrate outdoors, do all of this. And I thought, well, let's take that, but show people that you can do something opulent and extravagant in your backyard for six people and still celebrate whatever the occasion. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Your wedding or you've delayed, you know, kind of a milestone birthday party. I just wanted to show that we could set up a tablescape, (laughs) dinner table, something, a party outside that was, you know, COVID regulated as in followed the rules and be safe. And you could still do it in a very, stylish, chic, opulent, grand manner. Mm-hmm. So we did this, this style shoot in the back of a floral designer's um, back garden. There was a big field. So we basically set up a dinner table. We had a quartet ensemble performing, you know, from floral to the every single detailed was planned from linens that we had, that I had flown in from the US. Oh, wow. Every detail was just done the way I would do or we would do a dinner party. And, and it was done at a level that could show people, you can still celebrate and you can still do this. And that was the purpose behind it. We were also creating content because I found that, you know, as with everybody else, people were online posting content from past events because nobody had current events to post. <laughs> right. To me, this was creating new positive content that we could put out there, but it was also you know, just that first shoot that we did, we did three over the summer. The first one was just, everybody was just so happy to be together again, even though we were socially distanced, wearing masks outdoors, you know, sanitized everything. Everybody who would normally be, you know, at any wedding or a party behind the scenes was just so happy to be there and get creative and do what they've missed doing for six months. And nobody got paid. And nobody got paid. (laughs) But we boosted morale, created content, and put out a positive message. If someone were going to say to you in February, okay, Bruce, starting next month, you're going to have to wear a mask. Stay six feet away from people. You can't hug people. You can't shake hands with It's futuristic. I mean, it's like, it's not, it doesn't really, it's not really happening. Well, and I think for the most part, it changes, it has changed the way we live and the way you think, the way you travel, the way you shop, the way you consume, the way you socialize and interact with anyone. And, you know, to say that vaccine comes, solves everything, boom, 24 hours later, I don't think it'll go back. I think our, our society is changing in a way. And I think we just have to be very conscious of how we prepare ourselves to be able to continue and move on and do what we love doing. What we do is gathering people and celebrating. And I think we just have to be conscious and aware of how, you know, moving forward, it's, it's affected. So you was this television show popular in the UK or is it stri- strictly in Ireland? It's funny. The concept came from RTE, which is the main network in Ireland, and they commissioned the show. So it only ever aired in Ireland. Oh, okay. 
before the show aired, they sold the international distribution rights and the concept to BBC worldwide. So they couldn't show it internationally. So the only people, so, and it was, it was popular, but just, we were just in negotiation with them end of last year, beginning of this year for season two, when they decided they didn't really have the financing to, to put on, to, to take it to another series. So we were then in talks with BBC who owned the concept to find out what they were doing with it and how it would be distributed so that we could try and support that um, socially from our, from our platforms, but also see if anybody would pick it up and could be part of that. And then that all went quiet until we discovered this summer that the show has aired in South Africa. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it was lovely to do an island. It was a really, really well-received show because even though it's reality and it's competitive in a way, because it's about the dynamics between the two wedding planners um, and, and what we put forward, I think for, for couples and for people watching it, it was a really feel-good show. Here's my question. When you look at a room that's completely empty, is it like a, like a writer with an empty page or an artist with an empty canvas? And not to make it less grand than it is or more grand than it is, but it is. It's a very artistic, you know, yeah. you're making something out of nothing, mm -hmm. literally. And I think, it, 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 unless you're visual in that way, it's always hard to explain, but I think visually. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm a very visual person. I, I like tangible things. I love color and textures and fabrics. And that's how I think, you know, I, it's, so I, depending where I am or where I've been with the clients at that point, and, you know, I will go in maybe with my own idea or I walk in and I'm like, Ooh, we could do this. We could do this. We could do this. And, and the creative wheels start to turn mm -hmm. and then, and I allow myself that process, but then I take, okay, but they need this, this, and this, or, you know, this is the room for the ceremony, or this is this. And I'm already doing it for, for these clients in California with the venues that we sort of pre-selected. Mm -hmm. I'm going there with an idea of already what we can do where, but then it really will become about being in the space and understanding from them what they visualize and what they want. And sometimes it's taking literally what they want and being able to create that or educating them as to why doing it this way might work better than doing it this way or different elements you can bring in. So it's, it's, it's a very visual creative process, but the challenge, this reminds me, so it's a longer answer than you wanted. No, no, no. We were looking at florals and, and talking different, and she did not have a visual mind whatsoever mm. so in her head she could not picture it and even until the day she was like i'm relying on you because i can't picture what that's going to look like let me ask you a crazy question if someone's like that and you have an intimate relationship with the person of making almost like a you know a three-dimensional model of a room like yeah. you know like they do with city planners or you know architects yeah there's a lot more of that now and it's a lot easier to do is there software that does that? Yeah, the other software that does it, there's, depending on how design-led a designer is, they have the software and the ability to do that, or we contract it out to someone to, to design it and draw it. And as I said, I can, 
I can't physically do that. And technology doesn't really suit me in that sense because it needs to be perfect. But I can walk someone through it and someone will put it together exactly as I want. And I think certainly with destination weddings, two things. If you're not living in the same location as the client and you're doing a lot of things virtually, or if the client is not living in the destination where the wedding is happening, those renderings are just key. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Without modern technology, without FaceTime, without Zoom, you're in London, your client's in California, she wants to do a party in London. She's not, she doesn't have to fly over 20 times. You could say, well, here we are in the ballroom and you can literally be holding a phone and say, you know, yeah. this, is what, this is what this looks like. I wonder if, if, if the, what you do could have happened 25 years ago. I mean, you could technically, and I know, I don't think I've ever done it that way, but you could have a situation where a client has never been to the venue that they're getting married in. Right. It's not happened to me personally, but it could, as you said, with technology, you can make them live through it. You can walk them visually. Could I plan a wedding in a destination or in a venue that I've never been to? I mean, the short answer is yes. You know, the comfort level would be different. Logistically, there'd be a lot more... Um, Landmines. <laughs> yeah. You're taking my freight. Yes, there'd be a lot more landmines, but I think there would be a lot more, you know, sometimes, not that I want to say that you leave things to chance, but once you've been somewhere, you know, oh, there's, you know, that there that I need to be concerned about, whether it's a tree or something, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, could I plan this wedding in California without ever going? Probably. Would I want to? No. Would I do it if I had to? Yes. Because I still may not get to California next in two weeks. But Well, that's the fascinating thing is that living right now, could you ever, uh, if someone had to set you in January, in February, you have to quarantine in Canada and then maybe you can fly yeah. to California. Maybe not. Maybe in a month, maybe in a day, maybe. You, but ordinarily, you wouldn't think about it. You just did it. For me, getting on a plane and going to a destination or going to see a venue somewhere, 24-hour notice, yeah, okay, fine. Let's, you just did it. Whereas now, it's just... It's Logistics, just figuring out if you can get there. Challenging and, you know, little things like the lack of access. So, you know, for me to get here, and again, I'm in a remote part of Canada, but normally would be one connecting flight. Well, I had to do two flights, but even to get from here to San Francisco is three flights. Oh, really? Yeah. So is it's there even an airport in Nova Scotia? <laughs> there are a few. <laughs> Halifax is the major airport, but my hometown's a four hour drive from Halifax. But the thing is you used to fly, you used to be able to fly direct from Halifax to Heathrow daily. Ah. Um, they stopped that. And then the problem was that the connecting flight from Toronto, if I went London, Toronto, Toronto, Halifax, only got in at 9 p.m., which meant that that was like 1 a.m. my time, and then there's still a four-hour drive to get here. So then I flew to Frankfurt. So Frankfurt to then Toronto to then Halifax to then here. With travel now, you can book a flight anywhere, and you can go technically um, like I can get across Canada, but on my last flight segment to California, somebody might decide that A, they're not letting me on the plane, or they might decide that they're going to let me on the plane to go to California, 
But when I get to customs in San Francisco, they may say, sorry, you need to go home. All, the big issue for travel is, is that the rules are different everywhere. In every country or in every airline? Or both? It's not about the airline, it's about the country, but I think it's also the country and the state. Certainly with the US. In the US, I know, yeah, absolutely. Within Europe, they literally change the rules on quarantine weekly. So you can fly south of France for a week, and whilst you're there, they're gonna change the rules, and when you get back to the UK, you've got to quarantine for two weeks. Oh, man. Which and who, was not in your plan, was it? Who, let me ask you a question. Who makes those rules and who, I mean, is someone- Individual governments. But how do they know you really, how do they know you're quarantining for two weeks? I know that's a silly question, but. I mean, a lot of it is assumed. Here, it's like when I arrived in Halifax, I could not leave the airport until you've signed in on an app. You've provided them with the information of where you're quarantining, where you're going, the address, your contact number locally. And every morning, I need to go online and check in and say that I haven't had any symptoms in the last 24 hours. I'm still quarantining at my place of residence. I have refused visitors over the last 24 hours. And then you kind of sign up. And everywhere has different, like here, I think the penalty is $1,000 per offense. I also got an email from federal quarantine government someone. Federal Canada. Yeah. You know, the local police enforcement can just turn up at my door to see if I'm here. Oh, so there is an answer to that question. So you, there's an app you have to sign in daily. Yeah. There's no clear rules. Globally, I mean, because it is different everywhere. And I remember when I was started planning this trip, I phoned the airlines I was flying with. I phoned the U.S. Embassy. I phoned. They refer you to the website and what the rules are or what the recommendations are for travel. But nobody will give you a, a, a verbal answer because they... And their name, so you could say, well, I spoke to... Exactly. They, they don't want, they don't take liability for it. That's insane. You know, when I made the decision to take this trip, I accepted the fact that I had to be flexible and it was going to be what it was going to be. So seven days in, we'll see. And you're just there by yourself? We were by myself for 14 days. I've been writing copy for my website. I've been doing a number of little projects. My evenings are, you know, glass of wine with Netflix. I'm, <laughs> I get up in the morning, do yoga Pilates. You can't, I can't take it personally. Right, exactly. Some people will flounce the rules and will plan parties and you see things on social media and you think, oh, how are they able to do that? And I made a conscious decision probably back in July that I was not doing anything for 2020. Yes, the events industry is dire and financially it's, it's stressful, but I just had to mentally make that decision because I sort of knew or anticipated that we wouldn't be in a better state now than we were in March. I support the bandwagon of you know, of lobbying for the events industry. But I'm also, you know, I, I, I won't be the forerunner on that because I also understand that there are a lot more people out there in worse situations than me and, and my industry. Right, well said. I don't, I don't want to get off this call because <laughs> you're not looking behind you. I mean, 
It is so stunning. I should have done like a live quarantine cam. That would be like almost like the big brother. <laughs> Do you want to be jealous? I'm in the most gorgeous house right on the lake. Is it cold yet? The only thing I know about Nova Scotia is that it's cold all the time. Uh, it's cooler, but it's not. No, it's been like mid-teens. That's cold. No, mid-teens as in, as in Celsius. Oh, so... that's very funny. It's probably very comparable to like the weather in Maine or New Hampshire. Right. Cape Cod. Even. Yeah. Well, Bruce, this has been absolutely fascinating. You're an amazing guy and we should definitely stay in touch. This has been amazing. Do. Thanks so much for everything. All right. Thanks for having me. You bet. Bye-bye. You can find Bruce on Instagram at Bruce Russell Events or follow Bruce and Tara live. As always, you can find me at Doug Winters, Inc. Feel free to comment on this podcast, as well as leaving me a message as to who you'd like to hear next. It's now officially three days before Election Day here in the United States, and I trust that everyone has voted. And if you haven't been to the ballot box yet, run. Stay safe, stay strong. We will get through this together. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all in a couple of days. Bye-bye now.